This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number seven, recorded on November 9th, 2018. Hello, folks. You are listening to the podcast that takes you beyond the classroom and into the trenches of science. I'm Delbert Abi Abdallah, and I'm here with Chris Fawner. Chris, how are you today? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Not bad. Not yeah. bad. How's the semester going? Uh, agonizingly slow. Agonizingly slower. <laughs> Actually, it's, go- it's gone really quickly. I think so. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just flown by. But it seems at this point that it's torture. Well, you know why that is, because you probably have two piles of lab reports and assignments that you still need to grade and get back to your students, and it's just two, weighing two on Two piles your is a gross underestimation. Yeah, I underestimated that a bit. Okay. <laughs> the piles of things I have to grade. You should see my inbox. I think I have over 100 unread emails, and uh, more than half of those are student papers. And the other half are important committee meetings, administrative emails, you know, just important things that you probably have to do here at Teal, right? They're not that important if they're unread, aren't they? <laughs> we won't, go, mean, any, we won't kidding, go any further. Kidding, for, kidding. We won't go any further for the sake of our jobs. Absolutely. Here with us today uh, not is... Not tenured yet. <laughs> not tenured yet. You had to add that in. Um, also here with us today... T.J. Fisher, um, senior student in the biology department at Teal College. Why don't you tell us a few things about yourself, T.J.? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. It's going to be a lot of fun, I think, today. I think so. I'm uh, excited for you to turn the screws on Dr. Fawn. <laughs> I can't wait. Can't wait. Did some research. Uh, I'm ready to go. But yeah, I'm T.J. Fisher. I'm a senior bio major here at Teal. Um, pre-physician assistant actually recently had been accepted to Mercier's, so I'll be up in snow country here in May. Up in Erie. Very good. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Excellent You've news. You've got uh, a car that can plow through that six foot of snow. What? They got six feet last year, didn't they? They got a lot, yeah. Yeah, they did. And one sto- wasn't like one storm that dumped like a giant amount of snow on there, and a total accumulation was yeah, a lot. absolutely. We actually decided to go up skiing the day after that, which was not our best decision, but I mean, no one was on the slopes, and it was good conditions, but yeah, getting there was interesting. Where do you go skiing up around here? Um, I'll go to Peak and Peak, up in just on the other side of the oh, lawn yeah. to New York. That's right. But if I want to go somewhere a little more upscale, I'll go up to Elliott-Cuttville, right by uh, Salamanca. Hidden Valley, is that? Holiday Valley, that's Holiday it. Holiday yeah. Valley, okay. Up in Elliott, Cottville, New York. Yeah. Okay. Big skier, I really like, enjoy it, so. I never have, but I've always wanted to learn. I'd love to see you, Jay. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> I would never allow that to happen. What, skiing? Yeah, I, I've never Why not, skied man? before. I yeah. mean, no, I, no one skis before till they ski. I mean, you just you pick it up and, uh, and go. Sure, logically, but I'm sure everybody <laughs> else would just like to come and stare as I fall and plow down the mountain, so that'd be great. A lot of fun. You know, uh, total snowfall uh, Erie last year, 2018, is 198.5 inches. Have fun. Yeah. It's close <laughs> to like, what, 15 feet or so? Maybe I can ski feet. to school, if it's, uh, you know, downhill. <laughs> <laughs> you might want to raise that Jeep up. Yeah, just a little more, you think? Just a little, well, I mean, it's not raised enough, right? <laughs> yeah. What, do you need a step ladder to get into it now? <laughs> You're going to have a lot of fun future, Dr. Fisher. A lot yeah. of fun. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> So, uh, a bio student here at Teal, and uh, into Mercyhurst, this is uh, your last year. My last, hoorah, like you said, this semester is going way too fast, it's kind of scary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, it's scary. absolutely. Uh, so, uh, anything else you want to tell us about yourself? Uh, oh, I think that's it, I think that we have a special birthday today, though, though, don't we? We do, November 9th, Carl Sagan's birthday. Ah. Which, you know, uh, only recently, after having, uh, you know, read about him a little bit more, uh, you know how Wikipedia has that section on like oh, yeah. who they're married to. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of his first wife was Lynn Margulis. Oh, really? Margulis, yeah. Oh, I didn't know the that. The endosymbiont theory mm-hmm. woman. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, I did. I I had no idea till huh. till I looked looked up a few things about Carl Sagan. Smart kids, then, right? You would you would think you would so. Hope, you but, would but, think but, so. But uh, the uh, are we making the assumption that uh, smartness is an IQ and all that is is genes? genetic? Okay, yeah. we're already getting into it then, I, I see. Why I not? I mean, hey, <laughs> podcast has started, man, right? We could so, do a separate episode and a separate podcast on the genetic, genetic factors uh, of IQ and intelligence. Sure. Into Galton a little bit. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I think most uh, studies show it's more about uh, environment. education, upbringing, environment, yeah. et cetera, and not necessarily genes, right? Sure. Unless you're born with some sort of a you know, giant deficit in terms of learning ability, then mm-hmm. that's genetic. But yeah. mm-hmm. 
the the rest of it i think is is environment well if you have some free time in your i mean it seems like you're pretty bored with the semester now and the oh rest yeah of the year. you got it if you'd like to come Nothing in for a do. few more guest appearances <laughs> why not hey we'll bring you back on but we brought you on today uh as part of a project you did in your senior seminar in biology course which i'm teaching this semester right and um uh, in that course, you guys look at uh, research papers about a particular topic, and then you present on it, and you wanted to present yours as part of a radio show. Yeah. So let's just get into what I picked, right? So what I picked was abiogenesis. Um, it's informally known as the origin of life. little backstory on this. My freshman year here at TO, Dr. Fawner was actually one of the Bio 145 professors along with Dr. Ballas. When we got onto the subject, man, I was mesmerized by it. Mesmerized. So that's our basic uh, bio course. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Mesmerized. You're laying that sarcasm on pretty thick. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Seriously, this, you guys really sowed in the seeds of uh, curiosity for me. And this was definitely the topic that got me interested in biology. I was going to say, what was the kind of background? What was the spark, I guess, that made you yeah. want to study and talk about this topic and here today? That This was it. Yeah. You guys definitely did it for me. But anyway, so we're going to be talking about abiogenesis. I think it's important to break down words, you know, big words. So do I. Big words can be scary. So we have abiogenesis, a meaning not, bio meaning life, and genesis meaning creation of life. So life arising from non-living matter. Uh, Just a little disclaimer. You should go as a polysyllabic word for your next uh, Halloween costume. Excuse me? (laughs) (laughs) You're saying big words are scary, man. (laughs) I I get it. I get it now. Uh, Big words aren't that frightening. (laughs) But yeah, just a little disclaimer. There's no doubt that this is a controversial topic. Um, Not not for us. Not for you, but this particular topic won't be focusing on the religious aspect of abiogenesis or the creation of life, but instead various hypotheses offered to us by this theories offered to us by scientific scientists over the community. So we're not going to cover Genesis today. Not today. No, we're going to leave that to Sunday and Sunday school. All right. All right. Cool. Sunday school. That was a good one. (laughs) But yeah, let's get into it. So um, before we talk about creating life, I think it's important to talk about what makes up life. What's the definition of it? And this grinds your gear. This is oh, the, man. Man. This here we go is again. Why, this is why you wanted to do this topic, right? Our virus is alive. He, he's been on me, man, about viruses. <laughs> oh, trust me, I hear it down the hallways because oh, yeah. of both of your booming voices. Months, months. All he's I hear come about... in after an anatomy lab of mine saying, you'll never guess what Delbert did. What do you think? It's like it's like mom says no, so the kid runs <laughs> to death to try to get an no. opinion. Yeah, he's been on my case about viruses, man. He's trying to... Turn the class against me. He's taking polls in my senior seminar course, <laughs> trying to see who thinks viruses are alive, this is, who uh, doesn't. This is smelling like a mutiny. What are you? How are you running that senior seminar class this semester? Well, I mean, pretty soon with uh, uh, martial law. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. tell us, TJ, please. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your stance on the whole virus debate? Alive, not alive, and your evidence. So, my... You know, n- notice he, he left, he ended that sentence with your evidence. My evidence. Mm. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> so, right now, and until somebody else can convince me otherwise, I believe viruses to be alive. Um, well, you know, belief is a powerful thing. It is. And there's some backing from that now. I did some research, and actually, there's a very good article... Um, it actually goes into... Is, it, is this the one you texted me? It is. Okay. It is, yeah. I still have it open on as one of the tabs on my phone, so you, you go right ahead while I bring it up. Okay, yeah, so it actually talks about how they believe that viruses and ancient cells had a common ancestor. So they believed they had a common I mean, ancestor. Everything had a common ancestry. Well, yeah. not if viruses aren't alive, they didn't, according to your your <laughs> your argument. No, but, but, I mean, they could have been alive and then lost the ability, the ability to be alive, according to our current definition of being. Why don't we start with the current definition yeah, of what is to be alive? Let's talk about a current I definition. I think that would be useful. So maybe a few characteristics that define all life, sure. all living organisms. So according to Oxford Dictionaries, the condition that distinguishes animals and from plants and, yeah, yeah, and right. inorganic matter, including, is the capacity for growth, mm-hmm. reproduction, mm-hmm. functional activity, mm-hmm. and continual change preceding death. Now, this is the definition that biologists recognize for what life constitutes. So by functional activity, you're talking about the ability to create or break down molecules or metabolize energy, right? Produce energy for sustenance. 
And one other thing, and I think you alluded to this in your last piece of evidence, um, ability to respond and adapt or change based on the environment that mm-hmm. those organisms are in, correct? Yep. You okay. got it. So based on these... And that's car- key. Adapt environment is key there. I would say, and right. that's where I'm going to maybe twist the knife a little bit here. Based on what we're thinking with characteristics of life, we can say, and I'm not arguing with you, that, okay, the common ancestor of ancient cells and viruses. But, like Dr. A said, that could have been lost, and now, based on what we currently know about viruses, all the evidence as it currently stands, can we say that they're alive? I mean, who's making this definition, though? I mean, we have old people like you guys making oh, these definitions and enforcing them. We need to bring <laughs> We need to bring in these young new scientists with these cutting edge cutting edge research uh, articles um and we think we need to reevaluate what the definition of life should be. Now I'll give it to you under this definition no. I, I wouldn't consider viruses to be alive, but I have a problem with the definition more than How would you, know. you change it then? I would change it to one word, reproduction. So you would basically severely limit or constrain the definitions of life, what defines and characterizes life. But but even if you break it down just to reproduction, can viruses reproduce? They can. They can make more of themselves. If I put a virus on in a Petri dish and just leave it there, will it make more viruses? Not without a host. but you Not to, without a host. You okay. have to think the same thing as a human. We are a host on this planet. Without, if, uh, if I threw us out into an a, a spaceship in outer space, would we be able to reproduce? I might be reaching. But anyways, this article talked about how while cells got more complex and became multicellular and gained possibly more genes, mm-hmm. viruses did the opposite. They lost genes. They became so dumbed down, kind of, that mm-hmm. they started to rely on their hosts. Thus, they lost their replication machinery to do replication. And that's what the article got into. They talked about conservative proteins found between the two. I'm okay. not going to get into it, big bore story, but yeah, it was it was a good article. So I mean, they effectively only kept those genes that they absolutely the, needed for their basic you got it. only uh, the absolute uh, ones, kind of like yeah. minimal requirements. Yes. Yep. And you know, uh, it, it's not uncommon for organisms to ditch genes they don't need, sure. right? Or they you or know, to ditch we, entire cells, tissues, right. yeah, even yeah. redundant or vestigial organs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we've talked in class about the Y chromosome, right? And mm-hmm. about how over time it has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk to just effectively only contain those genes that are sex determining genes, and the rest is. I mean, very minimal amount of genetic material there that you're talking about. On the Y chromosome? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Other than determining sex, absolutely useless. Yeah, we talk about just the one gene there that that determines sex. Yeah, Yeah. So that got you on uh, origin of life. It did. And you uh, did some research on uh, the current theories on how uh, life came about. And you're going to tell us about a few of those, right? Yeah, so the first one I'm bringing to you guys today is known as spontaneous generation. Uh, this isn't a current one, actually. This is pre-1850s, mm. pre-middle 19th, 19th century. Um, spontaneous generation is... Do, do we know when it started coming about? I mean, it must have been... I don't know when it started. I can tell you when it ended, though. Okay. So, basically, spontaneous generation um, states that life came from inanimate things, and this happened rather frequently. Uh, an example of this would be, like, putting maggots on... Or, I'm sorry maggots sprouting from rotting flesh so you put some rotting f- flesh outside ooh and maggots come out of it it's, it's magical right magic <laughs> or my favorite one is if you wrap some bread and cheese and rags and throw it in a dark corner um a mouse is going to come out of it that's how you make mice it's kind of like alchemy that's where they were kind of getting it <laughs> that's one of my fa- I mean, that word is never used when alchemy, do you have yeah. the opportunity to use the <laughs> word alchemy i love it yeah, absolutely so when when did it end well i'm, I'm just trying to tie this with sort of Darwinian mm-hmm. thought or uh, Darwin's book coming out. So when when did this end? It's about middle of the um, 1850s, you know, in that area. When sort of Louis Pasteur put an mm-hmm. end to it. Yeah, Louis Pasteur came in. He did his famous experiments with the swan neck. I can go into a little bit about that. Sure, sure. When was Darwin, just for reference? He published his book in 1850s too, I think. Okay, same, Mid- same 1850s, time. Yeah, yeah, same time. And not to interrupt and get us off track, but it looks like even back in the... What is it? 16. Yeah. Uh, 1668. This theory was being challenged. They yeah, were. I, I was thinking after Galileo. Yeah. And it was Francesco Reddy who actually challenged the idea about 
these maggots that were magically appearing from rotting meat. So it went back all the way to the 1600s. And even then, people were kind of looking at these theories thinking, eh, oh yeah, something's up here. I mean, it's a big paradigm shift. I mean, going from going from this to what we're going to be getting into later. But anyways, uh, Louis Pasteur had a couple experiments. He, he knew that spontaneous generation, it's kind of, you know, doesn't sound quite true. So what he did was uh, he took two flasks of sterile nutrient broths. Nutrient broths. Ster- sterile meaning. Yes. Sterile meaning that there's nothing in it. There's no life in it. However, the broths, they're a good medium for things, bacteria to grow. So it, it contains food, food for mm-hmm. microorganisms, but there are no microorganisms in it. At this point, there's no microorganisms. So he probably, what, cooked it? Yeah, I'm sure put it over some fire, just boiled it. You know. <laughs> some kind of heat Bunsen pressure burning. next sure. to the campfire. Almost yeah. like he pasteurized it, might I say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very I good. wonder if they got Clever. that word from him. Oh, yeah. maybe. <laughs> my comedy level today, I apologize to my listeners, my comedy level today is that... Uh, yeah, you can do better. I can, I can. It's been a long day. <laughs> but anyways, he took It's two these... o'clock. <laughs> It's been a long day. Well, I've only had like three coffees, so... Uh, yeah, I guess you have a good point. Yeah. We're going off the rails. That's fine. That's fine. Back, that's fine. That's fine. So he took these two flasks filled with this food, these nutrient broths, and he put a cap on one of them, and he left the cap off of another one. He came back, let's say a couple days later, he noticed something. In the one where there's no cap, he found all these microorganisms, that nutrient broth was really cloudy. So stuff was growing in so it. So stuff was growing in it. Okay. The one with no cap, nothing was in it. So he But that th- was deprived of... Oxygen, oxygen, air, right? Exactly, okay. So he thought that this proved that um, spontaneous generation, it's, it's made up. However, opponents to him said... I don't think so. One of the ingredients in our alchemy recipe, as Dr. Fauner likes to mention, is oxygen. It's oxygen. So he says, all right, we'll expose oxygen to both of them. So what he did was he took, again, the sterile nutrient broth, and instead of capping it, he made this special swan neck glass tubing. You can kind of think of it like a trap away in a toilet. Sure. It, uh, sink. it, it uh, lets oxygen in it, mm-hmm. but however... It doesn't let microorganisms in it. It kind of sits in like a little cutout at the bottom. So any dust, microorganisms, bacteria are going to be kind of trapped or taken away, right? Yeah. And the only thing that actually gets inside in either one of these flasks, whichever one you're talking about, control or experimental, it's going to be the air. And the that's oxygen. the air. And when he came back a couple of days later, do you think he saw anything? <laughs> no, he didn't see anything. So what does this prove? Uh... From this, he was able to disprove the idea of essentially spontaneous generation in favor for abiogenesis, or I'm sorry, not abiogenesis, biogenesis. but biogenesis, the creation of life from complex living things. So that was a landmark experiment at Huge, the time, right? Yeah. Where he proved that effectively you can grow life out of nothing. Yes. Yeah. Huge okay. paradigm shift, absolutely. And okay. just imagine kind of all of the things that resulted from this, right? Um, centuries ago, just this simple, what we look at as a simple experiment, eventually led to, again, the idea that these things are able to grow on this specific type of media, probably had a lot of foundational bases for infections, eventually oh, treatment from, from of infections, mm-hmm. where things can germ grow, theory. where they can't grow, yep. and germ, exactly, germ theory. Yeah, from there on, uh, between him and... Robert uh, Coach, mm-hmm. I don't know, what, however you sure. uh, pronounce his last name, uh, went on to uh, effectively come up with the germ theory of disease, which is that you need microorganisms to cause disease. And uh, this was one way of uh, showing that that is the case. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there, you know, uh, Coach went on to do uh, experiments where he isolated organisms and put them in a new one, infected mm-hmm. again, et cetera. We're isolated again, go, yeah. yeah his sure. postulates, we're not going to get into that. Sure. But, Uh, anything else on this uh, abiogenesis slash biogenesis that Pasteur did? I think that pretty much covers it. Um, we're going to get into two more contemporary ones after our break. So A small uh, break, yeah, sure. Yeah, you want to go ahead and... Give a break? Okay, yeah, yeah so uh, uh, sure, that's a good time to take a break. For those of us listening on the radio, we'll have a small music break, and for those of... Uh, you listening uh, on the podcast, we will uh, power through. Okay, we are back with BioBusters. 
Uh, I'm here with Chris Fawner and TJ Fisher. Uh, we're talking about uh, the, or having some musings, I suppose, <laughs> on the origins of life or various ideas or uh, theories on that. Uh, so uh, thanks for telling us about Biogenesis and mm -hmm. Pasteur. And uh, the next thing that you want to talk to us about is the primordial soup hypothesis. Is that correct? Yep, you got it. So the primordial soup hypothesis is a little more contemporary than the uh, biogenesis that uh, Pasteur had discovered. But uh, in the 1920s, actually, that's when the primordial soup hypothesis first kind of sprang up. And it came from a, a Soviet scientist by the name of Alexander Oprin. And his uh, Alexander Oprin is that is that's not the same guy as the uh, genetics guy, is it? No, that was Lichenko. Yeah, yeah, you're no, no, not Lichenko. No, I think they're different. Yeah, yeah okay. you're my, my bad. But I mean, his uh, theory was best described by a biochemist called Robert Sharprio, and he summarized it in four easy steps. The first step is that the early Earth had a chemically reducing atmosphere, basically meaning there were no oxidizing agents found within the atmosphere. So you're thinking of oxygen, O2, yeah. stuff like that. Okay, which are typical oxidizers. Sure, correct? right, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the second one being, this atmosphere exposed, was exposed to energy in various forms. It produced simple organic compounds known as monomers. Monomers being your basic building blocks. Um, and a carbohydrate, that would be your glucose, your simple sugars. And a protein, that would be your amino acids. Exactly. So it's like taking a wall, you have a brick wall, a brick, a brick in that brick wall would be a monomer. And then the entire wall itself would, would be, be the very, very large molecule. You got it. You okay. got it. Which and what's polymer. that? A polymer. How about that? <laughs> Words. So mo mono meaning one and poly meaning uh, many. Many. Mm -hmm. Big scary words. Big scary words. Not bad when you break them down, though. Halloween costume. <laughs> polymer is a big word, I guess. Polymer. Three syllables. Okay. You should come to our Buy 145 class. Well, we'll see. <laughs> it, it, I go on a rant every single time about them not reading enough. Monomers, polymers, you have to Not just those, that, right? I, I just, just read. I say read, you don't read. Read the news, read the books, read a blog, <laughs> read. They don't read. But, you know. up the computer Anyways, and read something. I'm digressing. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, third postulate was these compounds accumulated in a soup, which may have been concentrated at various locations. Those locations could be, right now they're thinking ponds, lakes, oceans, ocean vents, shorelines, etc., and here's so some maybe, pretty extreme kind of areas of the yeah. earth sometimes, yeah, especially, especially with these oceanic vents. You got it. Really, where only maybe a few organisms are currently found in the present day and way back when on the planet earth, these different areas of the earth were probably more common. Mm -hmm. And we're thinking uh, these were primarily aquatic locations. Yeah, primarily aquatic. Or, I mean, at, at that point, I mean, this is like, what, 12 billion how many billion years are we talking? Oh, man. So life originated on Earth. They, they're thinking 3.9 to 3.5 billion years ago. Okay. I'm talking about the Earth oh, itself. Oh, the Earth itself. Oh, yeah, the Earth. I don't yeah. know. I don't know how. Why don't we look that up? Well, is he it, looks that it up. 12 billion, something like that, maybe 13 billion. Uh, uh, the age of the Earth, I am seeing here. 4.5 billion years old. Wow, I'm way off. Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> well, I mean, just by like, you Radiometric know, dating and from other pieces of evidence, it seems like the Earth was first formed a little bit over 4.5 billion years ago. Am I thinking of the age of the universe? I think you are. Yeah, 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 I think you're thinking, thinking of the age of the universe. Age of the universe. Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, that in the, those time ranges, 12 <laughs> billion, cares, right? 4 billion, <laughs> in the That's grand a long scheme time of things. Ago. <laughs> yeah. Let's go with that long time ago. And then his last postulate was by further transformation, more complex organ organic polymers or humans, animals, plants, etc., uh, developed in this suit. So... So, so you're basically I, mixing everything together here, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And some of the most basic, minimal molecules. These. That are found at the atmosphere at that time. Okay. Yeah. And you kind of need, and as you're going to talk about a little bit later on in the experiments, mm -hmm. you need something that's going to kind of jumpstart this stuff, Absolutely. right? It's going to help to uh, get this primordial, primordial soup, let's say cooking, if you mm -hmm. will. Going back to a culinary example, because I'm hungry. <laughs> so, go um, ahead. I was just going to ask you something. I forgot about it. Um, 
Go ahead, go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll remember. Okay. So a couple of scientists had read... Uh, oh, yeah. Did we prove this? That was my question. <laughs> that's what I'm getting this? into. Okay. Gonna, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so a couple of scientists had come across these four postulates, and they thought, hmm, I think we can, we can make this up again. So in 1952, a man by the name of Stanley Miller and another man by the name of Harold Urey simulated the atmosphere of the early Earth with a mixture of water, methane, ammonia, and hydrogen. These are the four molecules that were present in the early Earth's atmosphere. And this is the famous Miller-Urey experiment that you uh, all read about in your textbooks. Mm -hmm. Or you should should. all read about in your textbooks. textbooks. (laughs) Absolutely. So they took those four molecules and they used some electric sparks that that was simulating lightning at the time of the early atmosphere. And from the results, they were able to create almost all the common amino acids found within most living organisms today. So what are amino acids? Those are those monomers that we talked about that eventually go on to make proteins. So can one then postulate that in the evolutionary history of macromolecules, proteins were the first? In this experiment, yeah. Yeah, in this. And, you know, I mean, does would that, would that, does that make sense? Given, I mean, I, it makes sense to me, given that proteins are the workhorses of the... They are the building blocks. I mean, without proteins, we have no enzymes. We have no metabolism. We have no way of creating the other major molecules. If you think about it in this train of thought, you kind of need these basic amino acids present first in order for everything else to occur, right? Yeah, I mean, it really goes back to looking looking at stories and stuff. For those of you who are interested in English and stories, Frankenstein's monster, right? It's Mm. kind of the same idea. Shock, yeah. shock, shocking the shocking them into life, kind of. I mean, it's a more okay. I can maybe see <laughs> that. I'm sure we're I mean? missing some other. <laughs> not that we're talking about a real life nonfiction story here, but I guess you know maybe the, they read Miller and Yuri. Well, <laughs> that could be possible. Uh, the catalyst, right? The lightning strike that have eventually reanimated him and sparked to life these dead tissues and cells. Lightning uh, strike, Benjamin Franklin. Lightning strikes for everything, man. It's a catalyst for a lot of things. It is. We need to come up with some kind of experiment. Get a team of students, you know, out there in the fields, capturing lightning in a bottle and performing some type of reanimating dead cells or uh, wasted proteins. We're talking about flake. Halloween costumes, you can maybe go as Frankenstein's assistant, Igor. Oh, yeah. You think you can play that part? Hey, maybe we'll, uh, you discover something so uh, life-altering that you'll knock uh, Franklin off the $100 bill. Hey, I can only wish. My face <laughs> on the $100 bill would be the uh, You don't see too many of those, though, so you don't no, have to worry about no. looking at well, With our salary, we'll never, we'll, we'll never see your face on that bill. <laughs> maybe <laughs> It may be on there. <laughs> you I, think never gradu- I think it. a graduation party in high school was the last time I saw one of those $100 bills. <laughs> so, um, and then, uh, so these Miller-Urey experiments, right? So mm-hmm. they had to put in their sort of uh, experimental setup to simulate early atmosphere, water, methane, ammonia, hydrogen. Mm-hmm. So one may ask the question in Earth's first, you know, now apparently it's not 13 billion years ago, it's <laughs> about 4 billion years ago or so. Where did these come from? Yeah, so the common theory right now is that these this matter, these atoms came from asteroids actually hitting the Earth. Okay. So maybe we might be little... At one point, aliens, right? Well, that's not too far-fetched, right? The fact that we could be made of, you know, let's say cosmic dust, cosmic particles. I mean, that makes sense given the fact that the nature of the creation of the Earth, the nature of the creation of the universe, where would we come from besides, you know, kind of cosmic beginnings? Maybe not necessarily Extra ter- well, you could say extraterrestrial. Never mind. That's not a bad no, way of putting it. No, it definitely is extraterrestrial. Yeah. I like that. I like yeah. that. So, I mean, and and perfect. I mean, you you segued right into the quote that I've been waiting to use. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in my uh, obsession with Carl Sagan this week, uh, uh, one of the quotes that I found that I really like about him, or that he said, is that the following: the nitrogen in our DNA, the calcium in our teeth, the iron in our blood. The carbon in our apple pies were made in the interiors of collapsing stars. We are made of star stuff. And you know, uh, I love this guy, right? He he, he does. He, you know, he's he's done great work. He probably, 
I mean, obviously, a lot of people are involved in these sorts of uh, uh, public uh, efforts to take science to the public. But I, I would, I would venture to say, in the last century, he's probably the most effective voice in uh, taking science out there Definitely. to a lot of people. And oh well, there's Bill Nye, the science guy, as well too. But you know, his is more, um, I guess maybe fun. mainstream. Would you say? Too. Yeah. Yeah. More fun. Yeah. 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 yeah more fun loving. But uh, recently, actually, you guys should look it up. Uh, uh, sometime last week or this week, uh, the Carl Sagan Institute uh, found the so-called lost Carl Sagan lecture. He had given a lecture uh, at Cornell uh, where he used to work, and uh, it was that's why you. Have I, such I a, with him, yeah. <laughs> have such a uh, respect for him. I'm no, sure no, that I, Cornell I, connection. I would have re- respected him otherwise too. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, so yeah, he he gave this lecture at Cornell, and uh, it, it and it's not just about uh, you know cosmic stuff. He talks about uh, God and origin, our purpose on Earth, things like that. There was a very good uh, question and answer session at the end of it. So I would implore you and our listeners. Uh, it's about an hour and a half or so to find to go and uh, uh, look it up. If you just uh, Google Carl Sagan lost LOST lecture, it, it should pop up. They, they found it recently in the archive. We had, no one had seen it before, I think. And he was uh, preceded by kind of a, a contemporary, or I'm sorry, a pupil, or how would you want to say it, on Cosmos, right? Oh, not preceded. You mean followed. Followed by, followed by, yeah, by yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah. Did you say he wrote him a letter at some point? It, you know, if I remember in my story correctly, and uh, when he Neil, was a kid, right? Yeah, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, when he was younger, uh, teenager, I think, he had written a letter to Carl Sagan saying, "Hey, he's interested in all this stuff." Probably when Cosmos, the first yeah, Cosmos, sure, was on I'm the sure. air, and uh, he went up to visit him in Ithaca. You know, this was a kid uh, from Brooklyn, I think, is where uh, Neil deGrasse Harlem? Tyson was it Harlem? No, maybe it was Brooklyn. New I can't York remember. City, but, yeah, New uh, York City. You know, let me, uh, let's Somewhere nearby Neil New York. Neil deGrasse uh, Tyson. Uh, but anyway, so he wrote him a letter and uh, he said, hey, you know, come visit. And uh, he went up. He was born in Manhattan, yeah. uh, uh, October 5th, 58. Uh, so, yeah, he went up and uh, visited him in Ithaca. And he was going to actually attend Cornell and decided not. Eventually went to Columbia University. Uh, and, um, but, uh, I think they either remained in touch or something like that, but yeah, there is a connection between Neil deGrasse and, uh, Cosmos. And then he stole, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. He didn't steal it. Well, no, I, yeah, of course he didn't steal it, but he He revamped it, gave homage to maybe, uh, but you know, the interesting thing about the Cosmos, the one that Neil deGrasse Tyson does, it is written by. Uh, the Cosmos, a space-time odyssey, the one that he does now, it is actually written by one of Carl Sagan's uh, wives. I think he's there his second wife. or okay. uh, Might be his second and last. Actually, I don't know how many times he's been married. It is written by Andrianne, and Andrianne is one of Carl Sagan's uh, wives. And she, she's actually written a couple books with him. Okay. Oh, wow. Uh, one of the names escapes me at the moment. Talks about sort of our place in the world and... Or, why are we here? Is she a scientist too or another profession? Uh, I don't know. His first wife was Lynn, right? Mm-hmm. And she's she's the scientist. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, everybody's a scientist, right? Sure. I mean, uh, I mean, she's. I think she's a writer, right? But I think everybody's a scientist. You, mm-hmm. you in experiment some yep. in some way, right? We, we, we all have science in us, I think. Boy, that's a good tagline. We are all scientists. We are. We are. I think we we, we evolved to be that way, right? Yeah. Uh, I think uh, our entire history points to science, right? People think of uh, technology as something very sophisticated. It isn't. I mean, early man with a stone tool, that was technology, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You know, trial and error, yeah. you mm-hmm. know? Uh, first guy ate a deadly mushroom. Well, well hopefully there was a witness <laughs> I was there, right? Say that uh, didn't work <laughs> you know, out too well for the exactly, subject there. Hopefully but there was a witness there. But the observer so, had a lot of fun. We're all scientists. I really truly believe that, and it's just a matter of, uh, and you know, you observe kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're all scientists too, but we just uh, have a tendency to 
kill well, just that more amateur yeah. or at a lower level, right? Yeah, you know, they're all they're still practicing the yeah. core components of the scientific method. I they agree. are, they are. But you know, I think parents uh, do a grave injustice when like, ah, don't break that, don't do that, don't try that. You know, like, to so basically. The opposite would be here. Here's a set of matches. Go play and have fun, and <laughs> well, you know, I'll stop you and have the house matches uh, outside in a controlled environment. I'll see why not. I mean, yeah, you know, play with all the matches you want, man. Well, that's good. I know now who will never babysit, babysit my. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> they might be good scientists. Oh yeah, they'll end up winning the Nobel Prize, but <laughs> oh, it'll cost me a home. You and... give me way too much credit, my friend. No, no, you're insane. Okay, right, so let's, let's bring it back. Yeah, any, yeah. Anyways, anyways. Uh, so we've talked about, what, the primordial soup hypothesis. We've talked about spontaneous generation. What's the, and to me, this is one of the more, I like the idea and the theory of mm-hmm. primordial soup. Very interesting. But one that has been, I think, fairly controversial and within the past decade or so has only started to gain some scientific, you know, evidence yeah. is what? RNA world theory. So RNA should sound really similar for you. For those of you who are not too familiar with biology, it sounds a lot like something like DNA. Um, so we all have DNA within our cells. Um, they serve as like a recipe recipe book to our entire proteome. That proteome being all the possible proteins that we can make up. You know, proteins make up what your hair looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, just you know everything that the way you look. So think about the letter P, right? Yeah. Proteome, protein, it's going to be our physical makeup, physical appearance. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So why do many scientists believe that life originated with nucleic acid if we have DNA in our cells? Well, the main reason of that is because unlike DNA, RNA can actually self-replicate without the aid of a protein. Uh, this is, of course, thanks to a ribozyme. And re- replicate, for those of us that are not privy on the terminology, is make a copy of oneself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You got it, exactly. And uh, what is a, not to interrupt you there, TJ, but what is a ribozyme? So what's so special about what's called a ribozyme? So it's essentially just some RNA that's able to do what those who are familiar with polymerase does. It's able to self-replicate its or make a copy of its own genetic code, whether that be you guys always hear AUCTG, those nucleic bases. It's able to make the complementary version of that. Okay. So early RNA would be created and quickly destroyed. However, after a little bit of time, the ones that took, uh, the ones that were more stable were able to grow faster than they were to be destroyed. Over time, these RNAs would develop a way to self-replicate, um, and the ribosomes that could do it the fastest, or the RNA that could do it the fastest, contributed more of its genetic composition to the gene pool. So, we're talking about sort of early environment, early, mm-hmm. early, early Earth, and uh, through this uh, soup of uh, building block chemicals that were there. Yeah. And after a very long period of time, uh, building blocks that would then become the RNA molecule. Exactly. Sort of coalesced. So you take your nucleic bases, you have your phosphate background, your sugars. Sugar. Sure. Okay. Put all that together. That's how you get your RNA. This is kind of your first... And, uh, and, and I think they believe that these components sort of came up differently mm-hmm. right from each other at different times and then eventually came together yeah. different times and like you said kind of connected together almost think about it like legos if you ever played with those as a kid um and the odds of that happening is oh it's astronomical, astronomical. it's astronomical not only it's astronomical but case. it's it's very tough i mean yeah, absolutely. if you think about billions and, of years and that's why a lot of these studies it took them many years i mean many failed experiments many absolutely could a decade or more of trying to figure out exactly how to put these individual monomers of nucleic acid together, right? Mm-hmm. And especially when it came to RNA, they had a ton of trouble. I think the earliest that they were able to have even a modicum of success was 2009. Um, and again, I... The molecule is terribly unstable. It's oh, yeah. very unstable. It, right. oh, yeah. Naturally, it really shouldn't even exist, right? It shouldn't be able to come together into its form because of how unstable it is, which is why it took such a long time for them to actually start with these individual building blocks and then connect them one at a time to form the polymer of RNA. And is why we don't see that in our cells anymore. Uh, very little, organi- few organisms have it. The only ones that do pretty much are viruses. You know, they're still being alive and stuff. 
but right, yeah. right. Doing, doing their living thing. <laughs> doing sure, their, sure. Viruses doing their living. Thing. But we we do have it. We do. We do have it. We do. Ha- we do yeah, have okay. it. We don't use it as our main uh, genome, though. No, so we no. use DNA. It's an intermediary it's, molecule. It's an intermediate. Between DNA yep. and protein, mm-hmm. which is simply uh, a means for an end. It is correct. Yep. So, and then is it believed that at some point, uh, what these RNAs? Uh, gain the ability to self-replicate, right? Mm-hmm. And then, is it then the idea that uh, to go from RNA to DNA, just a simple modification to the sugar happened because the sugar that's mm-hmm. part of the basic component of RNA has an extra oxygen that mm-hmm. yeah. DNA does not have. So at yep. some point, possibly that was lost. Yeah. Other than that, the molecules are fairly they're they're identical. They're almost identical. That single oh, oxygen yeah, on the yeah. second yeah. carbon. Yeah. The, the final structure is different, two strands versus sure. one, et cetera. But and then no, a base okay. difference as well, right? A base difference, mm-hmm. yep. And then, uh, so we, we gain nucleic material, genetic material. We package that in some sort of a vesicle, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, these were called the protocells, right? So early cells. And uh, all they were was just probably simple genetic material inside of a membrane. Yep. And then eventually over time gained more function mm-hmm. right so early on simple genetic material able to replicate divide make more of a cell originally not necessarily make more cells right even we gained that later on later on mm-hmm. and then gain function as we go then hey lynn margulis comes in at end of symbiotic theory right ancestor uh, organism uh, engulfing of the mitochondria absolutely engulfs another organism that becomes the mitochondria or the chloroplast mm-hmm. and then gain function repeatedly over time right yeah so like you said these rnas they kind of need a home right they're very unstable there's actually a theory that these rna got trapped in some clay so clay uh-huh. has very small vesicles almost like a uh, structure to it and that provided kind of protection from the the dangerous environment that it was in well, those clays, uh, uh, let's see, clay experiments earlier. So if I remember correctly, those clays uh, are also needed uh, for these original uh, formation of these first cells. So the idea is that uh, clay crystals uh, play a major role in the formation of these first mm-hmm. cells and those yeah. experiments have been repeated right? they have been they uh, have been. people have uh, effectively uh, say dumped genetic material plus membrane component on mm-hmm. on clay surfaces and uh, they do uh, help in the formation of these uh, uh, rudimentary cell-like vesicles containing genetic information mm-hmm. oh wow so yeah i think uh, these studies came out as early as 2013 or so and uh, it's believed that these uh, early uh, cells formed on on clay or on areas that had clay. And there are a few actually places on Earth where that kind of still happens. There are these clay formations out in Australia. Mm-hmm. I forget what part of Australia where they see some of that rudimentary business still going on. Well, that actually lends some support for this theory, this RNA world theory, because a lot of the detractors to this theory will say, oh, okay, so took the scientists in a controlled laboratory setting all of these years to finally string together these different monomers making up the RNA nucleic acid. If it took so long for everybody to do that, these scientists to do that in a controlled, pristine laboratory setting, how would that have been able to happen whatsoever? What were the chances or odds of that happening in the, you know, very volatile environment of early Earth? Yeah, the and odds are low, but it does happen. It yeah. does happen. Given the key is... Infinite yeah. amount of time, I right. mean, yeah, sure. Yeah, but I mean, for that to happen, though, for that vesicle formation to happen, you need fatty acids, right? So mm-hmm. you would have had effectively to wait till that sort of came around in terms of the evolution of life. But mm-hmm. it's like you said, it's a waiting game. Maybe uh, it's, at years, some right. point, you know, all of these things weren't happening. The soup wasn't kind of percolating. The vesicles weren't forming to wrap around this genetic material. But after so many years, conditions became optimal. Conditions mm-hmm. changed. When all the right pieces lined up, that's when it Exactly. Yeah, and I mean, it, it. we know it takes a 
really, really long, long time, right? I mean, Earth is, as I've learned today, uh, <laughs> 4.5, 4, 5 billion years ago, right? And mm -hmm. we as a hominid species did not come around till what? 100, 200,000 years in our current form. Right? Yeah, I so, think that's being generous to us. Yeah, so. exactly. So uh, we didn't uh, come out of Africa till uh, 40, 50,000 yeah, years ago. So, I mean, it, it does take a lot of uh, time uh, for, for life to, to put us together spontaneously yeah. happen. Absolutely. Yeah. So, to kind of wrap this all up, I'm going to ask you guys. We went over all three different uh, ideas of abiogenesis. Which one are you guys leaning towards to being correct? I mean, I guess you could pick spontaneous generation if you're really set on alchemy and stuff. But, <laughs> uh, between the primordial soup hypothesis and the RNA world theory, what do you guys think? Well, I don't see how each of these theories are exclusive from each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree. I think there's data... There's experimental evidence that there definitely supports. Ah, uh, did I say is? Wow. It's a pet peeve of mine. You know, I, 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 I'm sorry, Tom. No, no, I always. Yeah, but I, I do it in class. No, no, I always I catch it, it class, yeah. you know, in written form, but sometimes every now and then <laughs> okay. there is data. I'm sorry. And this, <clears> the single <throat> version is. There are data. <laughs> there is datum. Datum. Uh, <laughs> there are data that support both of these theories and both you know, sets of data are very convincing. And like we had said a few minutes ago, the optimal conditions of the planet Earth, all of the molecules coming together, there's no reason why either of these theories or instances couldn't have happened. Yeah, no, I, I, I think they definitely both occurred at the same time. And um, I don't, you know, there's proof for both. And um I don't see why they have to be mutually exclusive. I don't. I don't think they, they have to. Yeah. What about you? Um, I, I agree with you guys. I really, really like the RNA world theory as opposed to the primordial soup hypothesis. Um, we talked about that intermediate between DNA and protein, that RNA. It makes you wonder why it's there. I think uh, the fact that we started with RNA kind of sheds some light onto its presence within the cell. Mm -hmm. Also, viruses having it. Um. <laughs> Also makes me think that life originated with that RNA. Are you sure that your future calling is as a physician assistant and not as a virologist? Because I know, I know. your passion and your unending pursuit of what I think is more philosophy than biology, but <laughs> dogged pursuit. Dogged pursuit. I like that term. But this dogged pursuit of okay, viruses being more alive than not. I don't know. There might be, yeah. maybe that's a specific field of... Somebody's got to stand up for him. It's not too late to change your mind, right? It's true. Uh, we've all made terrible decisions to go on and become PhD people. I think I, <laughs> <laughs> I think you can do the same. No, I'm kidding. No, no but you know... Um, I have an extra $20 a month maybe that I could pay you to be a, uh, uh, a research assistant okay. for the next few years. Uh, I still have uh, some money in my startup fund. It'll support maybe another couple months of. Uh, oh, okay, okay, <laughs> kidding. So, um, the the other thing that I think we tend to think of, uh, and you know, partly because that's how textbooks show things, or we're trained to think of things uh, as being sequential, mm -hmm. right? They don't have to be, and. You know, is it primordial hypothesis, soup first, primordial soup hypothesis first, or RNA? You know, and remember, for cells to come around, you had to have needed both. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right? So the RNA led to the nucleic material on the clay, led to the formation of these vesicles, but then these things could not do anything. Or very little. Very little, yeah. Very little other than self-replicate, right? Yep. But could, they could not have done any other thing metabolically till proteins came along. Yep. Oh, they would have just remained these, you know, random floating molecules that right. had no shape, no way of getting put together into much larger complex organisms. So almost like viruses, one would say. <laughs> I'm not going to go down that path. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> He's worn me down. Uh, Okay, so, uh, I mean, we're at 50 minutes or so total, so, I mean, we'd want to wrap it up uh, here at some point, but there was one thing that we barely touched on, and we don't have to, but just so to bring it up to our listeners in case any one of them want to uh, do some more research on it, look it up. Uh, there is the iron sulfur world theory, 
that uh, essentially talks about metabolism mm -hmm. uh, preceding genetics. Mm -hmm. Metabolism, effectively, we're, we're thinking what we mean here is catabolic, anabolic pathways, building breaking down breaking molecules, down. building yeah, things up absolutely. into larger molecules, etc. So uh, it it is thought that uh, you know uh, this may have happened before the genetic or RNA theory. We're not going to really get into it, but if someone wants to look that up, uh, they can. And again, I would say even with this theory combined with the previous two that we've discussed at length, that these will not be exclusive from each other. Um, either of these three could have potentially coexisted billions of years ago. Absolutely. Okay, so that is our show for today. Thanks, everybody, for downloading and listening to us. We're going to just give you some contact information for reaching us at the show and kind of telling us how we've been doing and any suggestions for future episodes. You can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com, and you can also find us on iTunes. All you have to do is search for The Biobusters. You can use any podcast software platform or catcher to download our episodes, and you can also listen to our episodes on thebiobusters.podbean.com. So podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. And uh, you know what's coming up. I know it's coming up every single time. Every single episode. So, so I have a... What would it be? A, a ghost Twitter account, <laughs> a uh, Twitter account, a non-functional, probably cobwebs all over it, Twitter account that I rarely check, but I always promise that I will. My Twitter handle, as the cool kids say, is at fauner916, and maybe I'll start posting some episodes today just for Dr. I, a. I think you should, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Delbert, D-E-L-B-E-R-T, and... Uh, You'll find some tweets. Uh, you go to Fawner's, not many there, but probably he promises to start tweeting the episode <laughs> links soon. What I need is maybe a student next semester who I can give a few credits to and will be my Just official copy, paste, Twitter and the click. spokesperson. Ah. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I like it. They'll, they'll be the official uh, social media person for the department. There I mean, you go. Hey, you have people doing that at this college. You have a, a marketing major, so... Just got to bring them in, find the right person. Find the right person. There you go. And uh, Fisher is not found on Twitter. I'm not, no. He Maybe boycotts it actively. <laughs> Usually found studying, however, which is a good thing. We appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, no problem. All right. Thank you all for listening, and thanks to Baha Namani for the music. And uh, see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.